This is Hypercritical episode number 29. This is a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple, related technologies, and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be detonated by my uh, co-host John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. We'd like to briefly mention that uh, the show is supported by EasyDNS.com and CampaignMonitor.com, who we will tell you about uh, as the show goes on. We also want to mention... Uh, that uh, bandwidth for this episode is provided by Midas Green Technologies, virtual private server submerged in oil. We've got to talk about that at some point. I'd like to get your take on that. But you can get uh, some free bandwidth by going to MidasGreenTech.com. How are like you, John? olive oil? It is not olive oil. Not your kind of oil. No. Not the kind of oil that you and your family have made for several generations in mm-hmm. Syracuse, Italy. Which is where you're from. I actually wouldn't like to hear by. I keep hearing that company advertised, but haven't uh, checked out the site yet. But you can tell me about it. Apparently, I've, well, I've been there, and they have these giant. They have these giant. I wouldn't call them bathtubs because it's much more professional than that. But they're they're tanks, I guess you'd say tanks. And in in the tank is uh, this this special kind of oil. And it's a certain kind of oil. It's, I don't know if it's mineral oil. I don't know if it's some other kind of oil. It's a proprietary oil. I don't know. But you can submerge electronic equipment into the oil and it works. And it actually cools stuff better uh, than air. And it's better than those computers which have little tubes and have liquid cooling inside of them. It just, you submerge the whole thing. And the only thing you have to do if you have like a fan... They disable the fan because there's no need for that to just be spinning in there. And if they have a hard drive, they just they put this special little coating on the outside of the drive, and then you submerge it, and it runs forever in there. It was pretty amazing. I actually looked at this. I actually saw this stuff working. It's like something you don't believe. Like you, you, somebody said, oh, I could just sink a computer in there, and it's going to work. Said, no, it can't. No, it can't. But it does. You should come on out. You should go, I'll fly out here. I'll fly it out here, and you can come Intriguing. I would love to see that. You should... Put up some pictures or something. They probably have some on their website, right? Yeah, on, on the MidasGreenTech.com, they've got a video of it. I think it'd be great to get you out here and have you just sort of, we could dunk you into the into the oil. Put like a wetsuit on you and dunk you. I'm pretty oily as it is. Ooh, I can only imagine. How are Italian you? Italian heritage. So no, how good. are you? You were off last week. You went on vacation last week. I did. Or was it last week? Wasn't it? it seems like so long ago. It was last week, though. Yeah, I guess I came back on Friday. Yeah, it was last week. Okay. It was fun. How was it? Relaxing. When I came back to work, I couldn't remember the code that I have to punch in (laughs) to get in, like the security door. That's how you can tell when you had a good vacation. Right. Did you just stand around out there, wait for someone to let, you know, light you in? I I found myself typing my zip code and I said, no, that can't be right. (laughs) So I just sat there for maybe three minutes and let my brain spew forth the correct answer the trick is that you have to not think about numbers but just close your eyes and do the uh the sequence with your fingers directionally you know what i mean muscle memory they call that yes and that worked you got in and you got to work and you were actually back last week we could have done the show last week but you said too much catching up to do too much it was just just one day i was just back on friday so friday is not my normal day and Mm. yeah i had to catch up on stuff okay so people are very upset. They First of all, and immediately, if there's ever any change in the schedule, Faith is nodding. If there's ever any change in the schedule, the slightest change, the slightest neuron, something's 15 minutes later than usual, 
I mean, understandably, they blame me for it, even when it's not my fault. Usually it is. So they're right to blame me first. But they get very, people get very upset, very upset. We get a lot of it. We get more email. If I was to say that the first computer ever invented was, uh, the, you know, the Mac LC. That was the first computer invented in 1922. And state that as a fact. I would get less email than if the show was 15 minutes late. Should be worried when they don't get upset, Dan. I know. Upset because they care. They do care. Especially your listeners. They love you. They love when you get stuff wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't don't we start with that? Let's do it. What do you got wrong this week? Uh, Last week, I'm sure I got a lot of things wrong, but this is the one that uh, was the most egregious. Uh, This, I think, person who responded to me here did it through Twitter. This is uh, Stephen Allred or Alred. Okay. Who's a computer science student or graduate? Graduate, graduate student. Yeah. Uh, King's College in London. So last week I talked a little, last week, maybe two weeks ago, I talked a little bit about uh, what's wrong with HFS Plus, sort of going over the stuff from my line review that, mm-hmm. that I, I covered. And one of the things that I, was, uh, I mentioned was that when you have one process writing to uh, an HFS volume, when it when it comes time for it to actually write the changes to the file system, right. it has to grab a big global lock and say, "Okay, I'm writing. Nobody else can write." And if another process that's running in parallel, you know, because on another core or whatever, wants to write at the same time, uh, it can't because it's blocked by that one writer. So it's one right, writer sure. at a time in HFS Plus, and that that's entirely true. And I was trying to emphasize how horrible that is for concurrency. I, I guess you could probably imagine you don't even need multiple cores because it could be that just one process has the lock and then got kicked off the CPU and another process comes onto the CPU and it wants to write, but it can't because the other thing has the lock. So it gets kicked off the CPU and, you know, it's, it's horrible for concurrency, even with a single core and with multiple cores, it's bad too. And to try to emphasize how bad this was, I went one step too far and tried to give an example of a, uh, a RAID setup or a multi-disc setup with multiple spindles. And if you were limited to one writer, I said that that would be a waste of the capacity of those spindles. That's not actually true it really depends on what's managing those spindles. If a traditional RAID is managing those spindles, it's pretty much up to the RAID controller how to do that. For example, if you are doing a mirroring RAID, even if you have one writer, you're still using your spindles because you're mirroring you know, your write to both sets of spindles, right? Uh, and there are many RAID configurations that have a mirroring component, you know, RAID 10 or all the, uh, all the different combinations, RAID 6. Uh, sometimes you're writing parity to one of the drives, so that's another instance where a spin- multiple spindles would be in flight. So that was a bad... Uh, bad attempt to explain the implications of only having one writer at a time because in RAID and in other multi-volume, uh, multi-disc setups, the number of spindles in action at any one time is not limited by the uh, limitations of the file system. It's really up to the controller and how it's divvying up data. So that was a bad example. And uh, Stephen called me on that, and that was uh, a good call. Only, only because he has an advanced degree do you even acknowledge him. No, I didn't know who he was when he sent the thing. I just looked up his information so I would know who to properly credit. Because mm. he was the only person who yelled about that. And if we had anybody, I mean, if you, if I had heard the same thing on a podcast and had been in a critical thinking mindset, I would have caught myself in that error. It was, it was just a dumb, off-the-cuff example that really makes no sense if you think about it for more than two seconds. Uh, so, my bad. Um some more follow-up. Remember when we talked about the dock indicator lights and how they changed the defaults and you know whether they're on or off in line and all that business? Maybe two shows ago. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I, I made a joke that like uh, now that they changed the default so that they're on, why even have the option? Because who in their right mind is going to go in there and turn them off? Because novice users, the vast majority of users, are just never going to touch a default. So whatever the default is, that's what it is. Right? And, right. and the few technically inclined users, I said, they're, they're the ones who are going to want the dots to be on. Because if you're that kind of techie nerd that knows about this option, you also are probably used to the old way of doing things. And you want your dots so you know what's running and what's not. Uh, and a whole bunch of people uh, replied to me through various means to say that they actually did go in there and turn that option off. And every single one of them had this uh, or a, a similar variant of this as their explanation. They said they don't put non-running apps in the, in the dock. So every, every application in the dock is running. Like they don't have permanent citizenship in the dock at all, which just seems crazy to me because that means when you start up your computer, the only thing in the dock is, on the left side of the dock anyway, is the finder icon and nothing else, I guess. So apparently that's how these people roll. And they, you know, so obviously they turn off the dots and whenever any application appears in the dock obviously it's running there's no need for a dot to be underneath it so the dots are just redundant noise and turning them off you know makes the appearance nicer so if that's the if that's the way people use their computers is something that had, hadn't occurred to me but that's what they did the, the reason uh it didn't occur to me is because it just seems so weird to me not to use the dock as a launcher at all i guess that's kind of odd because i use quicksilver as my launcher so i guess I no you're really... not like a launch bar i would have see i would have pegged you for a launch bar you should have a show on that yeah i'm I'll do a little sidebar. That would be great. That, no, this would be a great show. Uh, we got to do it. that. We got to do uh, it. Let me just do a sidebar on this because it'll take two seconds. Okay. Uh, I say before I talk for five minutes. Uh, <laughs> All right, that's, assuming, that's assuming I don't even ask any questions. Yeah. So <laughs> I've been a Quicksilver user since whenever it first became popular. Okay, wait a minute. Hang on. Hang on. What is Quicksilver, John? Oh, so hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, as far as I'm concerned... It's a thing that appears when you hit command space and then you type stuff. And when you type stuff, it presents options to you of what you're typing, what it thinks your typing means. Then when you hit return, it does whatever the current option is. So, so for example, if I were to hit a command space and type mail, M-A-I-L. Right. Some and you had it, if you had it configured in a particular way, it could be that the Apple Mail application icon appears in front of you. And if you say, yes, what I actually wanted to do was launch the mail application, you hit return and it would launch mail. But it could do all sorts of things when you type mail. Like this, the number of ways you can configure this, that's why it's hard to explain because it has tons of plugins and you can configure it however you want. And you can make like the world of things that you're typing into can be configured in 10 different ways a Sunday. Uh, so it's hard to explain what it really does. And really, the reason it became popular, I think, is because of that flexibility and because it was the idea that you could do stuff without taking your hands off the keyboard. And what you wanted to do, well, it's up to you. If you decide you want to type uh, this command space keyboard shortcut, which, by the way, Quicksilver had before Spotlight existed. So Spotlight kind of stole that from Quicksilver. You type that keyboard shortcut and you type something and you and you configure it so that what you type means what you want it to mean. And then, you know, you can hit return and tab and space and all sorts of things to like reveal documents or make small text snippets or do calculations or look at your clipboard history or just insane amount of stuff that you you can do so uh when i got into it way back when i decided i wanted to use it as an application launcher and pretty much only as an application launcher so what i did and continue to do is take my catalog which is what quicksilver calls the the world of things that it's searching when you type and pared it down to just applications Uh, and maybe one or two documents that i open frequently but i rarely use that in practice because i wanted the world of things that i'm typing you know, the world of things that they, what I'm typing can match to be as small as possible so there is 
less of a chance of confusion. Now, Quicksilver has some learning capabilities with manual overrides where you can train it that when you type command space PS, it launches Photoshop. Even though Photoshop doesn't begin with PS, it has PNS in it. You know, Quicksilver will do that kind of matching for you. And you can forcibly make it launch the thing that you want. If you have four or five applications that all have similar names or something, you can say, no, when I type command space, you know, XY, I mean this application. So you, you only have to do that in the beginning, you know, once you train it to your, to your needs. And eventually you get into a situation where you type command space, a couple letters, and hit return. It is by far the fastest way to launch an application, much faster than Spotlight uh, in my experience. Unless maybe you're on a system where it was just new out of the box with a newly updated Spotlight index. But when you have millions and millions of files like I do, Spotlight is not an efficient way to launch applications, especially if the application happens to have the same name as the contents of a text file that you used recently or some other thing. The world of things that Spotlight searches is much larger than, than my pared down Quicksilver thing. So, so why, not, why not LaunchBar, for example? So I've tried all the other alternatives at various times. Uh, LaunchBar, LaunchBar 3, 4, 5, all, all the history of LaunchBar, I've always downloaded and tried it. Uh, Alfred, uh, Butler, one of the other ones, I guess get confused by these English manservant applications. <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole bunch of them <laughs> on that theme. Uh, but yeah, I've tried a whole bunch of them. Uh, I think Alfred has come the closest to replacing Quicksilver. For a while, Quicksilver was kind of in this development limbo, kind of like TextMate, where, where the guy who developed it went off to work for Google and did something different that also had the initials QS. He did the Google Quick Search. Uh, but it was like, well, who's going to, you know, and, and Quicksilver, I believe, was GPL. It was open source, I think. Um, and I don't know if it's GPL. It might be. But it was just out there, and it was kind of languishing, and then, you know, Apple would update the operating system, and Quicksilver would get weird and, and crashy, and then so, someone would go in there and heroically make it work again. So I think now, finally... Uh, the qsapp.com has some people who are actively maintaining it. But for a while there, I was searching for alternatives because I was afraid Quicksilver was going to go away or break. And it was flaky for a while, right? Uh, so I tried all these other ones. And the reason I didn't use them is maybe it's the stupidest reason ever, but it's, it's, it's my reason. Uh, and it's a valid reason for me. I like the way Quicksilver looks. And I like where it appears on the screen. I use the... Which appearance do I use, Dan? I should say Bezel again. People love it. Now, mm. the, be- the bezel appearance, yes. uh, which, was that the default? I don't think that was a default way back in the day. Back in the day, there was this ugly default in Quicksilver. But uh, the bezel appearance is the one I use, and it's kind of like a transparent, rounded wreck with a big honkin' 128 by 128, I think, icon of your application left-hand pane, and then the right-hand pane says the action you're going to do to it or whatever. When I hit Command Space, I want that to appear dead center on the, on the screen. I don't want to read any text. Like, I just want the big icon of the application. Because as I type, that icon goes, flip, 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 flip. You know, as I type each letter, that icon changes really, really quickly. And my pinky hits return as soon as that icon looks like the thing I want to launch. I'm never reading any words. That's what makes it fast to me. Right. I want to do Command Space, a couple letters, which my fingers will type without me looking. I'm staring straight ahead at the middle of the screen at a big look picture of the icon. And as soon as the icon appears, I hit return. Now, launch bar is always up in the upper right. I don't want to look over there. Well, I tried. It, can, it, can, it can be in the middle, launch bar. Right, but the middle, the middle top. The middle right? top, yeah. Not dead center with a big honking icon like that. Alfred is really close, but it doesn't have quite as big an icon. And the other thing that's keeping Quicksilver going is that like, I have my catalog tweaked just so. With, I have a custom you know, applications pulled out of the developer folder and other random stuff thrown in there. Uh, and my catalog pared down just the way I like it. And all my shortcuts trained the way I want them. And it's free, and it's open source. Can you donate? So, Can you support them? 
I mean, I know uh, you would never, you would never do anything like support. I would actually project, if I but. if I felt like it would make a dent. I don't think I ever have though. I mean, I would buy a Quicksilver in a second. Uh, I think I almost bought Alfred. Maybe I did buy Alfred. I don't remember. I think Alfred is was was had some introductory price or whatever. But I've never bought Launch Bar because I, I've known that the upper right hand corner or centered in the middle has not been nice for me. But Alfred is close because it does appear in the center. It does have reasonably large icons, but it also has a lot of text. I don't. I, I like the image-centric nature of Quicksilver. So that's why I keep using Quicksilver. Someday, if it goes away or gets bad, this, there are so many alternatives. I'm sure I'll find one I like. But for now, I like Quicksilver, and I've just never gone off of it. And and I put, always put Command Space to be Quicksilver. I, I change the Spotlight shortcut to uh, Command Control Space. So, so, so is, is that mandatory? Yeah, no, all my machines... All my family's machines, command space, does Quicksilver. Even I put Quicksilver on, on my parents' Macs all the time. They've always had it. I think they think it's part of the operating system. And they use it, believe it or not. You know, like, it's, it's surprising. Once you, it's kind of like gestures. Once you actually, the learning curve is huge. Like, if you don't know it's there, you'll never actually use it. But my parents know if they want to launch something, type command space and type the first few letters and hit return when you see the picture you want. And even when they go to a Mac that's not, theirs it's not configured in that way command space still does that it just appears in the spotlight menu and they you know they figure it out oh it's a similar type of thing so, so. 30, 30 seconds pretty pretty long yeah. 30 seconds i know so is this i mean what are you saying that people should just uh should just go in and uh and and try quicksilver and, and then consider launch bar I don't know what to suggest for other I mean, people. You know, they, they might not have these. I, I think the efficiency of the big visual appearance of that icon is tremendous, much better than anything that shows text or shows text prominently or requires any kind of reading. And I know you don't have to read. It's not you can just glance and see the text changing and you're getting the one you want. But I, I feel like... So you're visual- actually inspiring me, John. You're inspiring me to consider trying Quicksilver again because I had abandoned it to sw- and switched to LaunchBar uh, a while back, and I haven't even looked at Quicksilver in like year, two years, I don't know, long time. It hasn't changed much, although it is being actively developed again. But I mean, the thing about Launch Bar is it does so much more than what I just described. And so does Quicksilver for that matter. But Launch Bar has many more features for, in terms of matching documents or recent documents that you've used. I think it, uh, the Quicksilver and all the other things also do system preferences, which I do use it for as well. Uh, but if you if you not if you don't have such narrow needs, if you're de- not just dedicated to using it as an application launcher, Launch Bar is more full featured and sort of a more stable or higher quality application as a sort of a commercial supported product than Quicksilver, which is out in the wilds of the internet uh, and periodically orphaned, but then picked back up again. <laughs> uh, as open source, it probably will have a long life because as long as people like me are addicted to using it, some will continue to maintain it. Uh, but I, I wouldn't go out and say, oh, you have to run Quicksilver, don't run Launch Bar. Try them all and use whichever one makes sense to you. And I think most people do that. Like, did you go off Quicksilver because you felt like it was text-mated? You know, yeah, partially because I felt like, well, it was it was abandoned, nothing new was going to come out, and then Launch Bar kind of happened, and a bunch of people that I knew were saying, oh, you try, try Launch Bar, it's less buggy. And to be honest, for a long time, it seemed like the only changes that were happening with Quicksilver were focused on what, what I guess you would call visual flair, like there were a whole bunch of themes. There's like a little cube that would come out and rotate around as you were typing. And it started reminding me of the whole like Linux community with the E uh, window manager for a while or, or whatever that thing was called, Enlightenment. And it just, it, you know, I, I said, you know, computer resources and the machines I was using at the time were somewhat limited. 
And I thought this visual flair, all this extra stuff, all this stuff, is it really, you know, is it really mandatory? Do I need it? And then there was Launch Bar with this sort of minimalist aesthetic and it was uh, austere and it was, it was nice. It was just like, wow, you know, this is, um, and it's commercially supported. And I do, I do like, I do like the, the company that makes it. Uh, so I just thought, you know, I'll do, I, I don't, I don't anticipate going away from it, but the, I do like what you're saying about the sort of visual simplicity of, of seeing the icons show up as you're typing. And, and, and really uh, the thing is, I know people like Merlin will do crazy things with launch bar integrating, you know, and like, I know people that, you know, for example, they'll have a, and I think Merlin was even describing this on a recent show, if I'm remembering right, you know, they'll have it set up so that you can key, you know, email things and, and send you trigger points to emails. And that. I really just use it as an application launcher. And I realize I'm, I'm underutilizing what launch bar and, and these other things can do. But for me, a lot of the time I just want to launch, I just want to launch an app, you know, or sometimes look up a, look up, um, look up a contact from address book. Quicksilver can do that too, right? Yeah, Quicksilver can do most of the things the launch bar can do, but it's kind of up to you to assemble from the little Lego pieces the functionality that you want. I always find with the ones that do more, that's why I've been aggressively paring things down. I've been removing plugins, don't, you know, removing features, because I don't, like even contacts, I used to have in Quicksilver, so the contacts were part of the autocomplete, but then I removed that, because if I ever saw a contact when I was trying to launch an app, it would piss me off. I, it's like, I just want to use it as a launcher. The only thing I use it besides launching is... Uh, if I want to find that application, I use the either get info or, or reveal commands that reveals it in the finder, mostly because I'm, if I'm going to right click and show package contents or something, or I'm like, I thought I had that application. Where was it? Command space, type a few things, tab, down arrow, return for, you know, reveal and finder. Uh, that's that's the limit of what I do. And one or two, you know, little special documents that I have, like, you know, a notes file or whatever that I launch frequently, I have that actually explicitly added to the catalog. Like, well, you can go to the Quicksilver catalog and add specific files that you want to find and just stick them in there. Uh, for, the, for the visual stuff, I have uh, Quicksilver has this option that says use superfluous visual effects or something like that. Yeah, I hate that. I've always had that turned off, always. Uh, and yeah, it did start to go crazy with like the, one of the ones they had was like radial menus where it would, it would array a bunch of options out in a circle and you could mouse to them or something or use the arrow key. I've never had any of that enabled. It's just one little thing in the middle of the screen with icons, command space, type something, return, that's it. Uh, but yeah, I remember Merlin talking about what he does with LaunchBar. And LaunchBar and Quicksilver are both very capable of doing that type of stuff, but that's not what I use them for. Okay, then. Right, so, that was a really that was a really really long long, but really cool thirty seconds. Yeah, I, I should add Quicksilver on my list because it's one of the few things that's been on my Mac since it was introduced and hasn't left. Mm. Almost left, but didn't quite. Well, let's do a, a quick sponsor then. All right, we're still not even in. We just haven't even scratched the surface of the FU. But we'll do a sponsor anyway. It's Easy DNS. This episode is sponsored by EasyDNS.com. Now, since 1998, EasyDNS has been helping people register a web address, transfer domains, set up email forwarding, and manage their DNS. That's a big part of what they do. Now, while they're doing this, they're providing the best support in the business. When you call them, an actual live human being picks up the phone, like the phone rings once or twice, and a human being answers. And they understand what you're talking about, and they're content to help you whether you are an, an uber geek like John or whether you are uh, just, just wanting to do something basic. doesn't matter. They'll help you. They'll help you do it. Or you can do it all on their website, which is pretty darn amazing. 
uh, and they aren't reading from a script. They, uh, they understand the business inside and out. And uh, you don't go around and around in circles. And you can go to easydns.com slash 5 by 5 where you can learn about uh, some special things we have set up just for our listeners. But why would you, John, why would you want to have uh, an external, a third-party DNS provider, for example? Why, why not just use your registrar? Uh, and by the way, they're a registrar too. But why, why not just use Namecheap or GoDaddy or whoever for your DNS? Why would you want something professional? You know, finding good DNS providers is so hard. You'll, if you Google for that, and you'll see people asking about it all the time because there are so many bad ones. So if you find a good one, stick to it because they are rare and there are tons of bad ones. And yeah. getting a bad one stinks because you're stuck with them usually for some period of time because That's you right. paid for the whole year. You right. know? These guys are great and I uh, highly recommend them. Really great interface. They make it really super easy to transfer your DNS over to them. And I'll tell you what, the power of, of having your DNS in a place that you trust and a place that you rely on means you can change your web hosts, you can change your email providers, you can change all of this stuff, but your DNS stays the same. It stays secure. It stays where you put it. You don't have to worry about your DNS going down if your registrar has a problem or gets hacked or something. These guys are just great. They have amazing uptime. Check them out. EasyDNS.com slash 5x5. Making me want to change my DNS. You gotta go change it. I'm not going to say who my current one is, and it's not like they're bad because I've heard the horror stories from the bad ones. But right. they're just kind of like, eh, you know. Yeah, go check them out. And actually, I'll get, I'll get, I'll get you hooked up. They would love to have you on there. I'm sure they'd love to have a whole audience on there. Wouldn't they? I, have, I have so many domains. That's something that geeks tend to have. Like, we how many do you have domains. right now? Right now. Too many. My wife yells at me about how many domains I have. You're never going to use that. Get rid of it. I'm Does like, she oh, even get rid know? Of it. Someone like else get it. She sees the bills. Like, what is this bill for? What what domain is this? She wants to know <laughs> the exact domain because they're cheap, but they add up. You know? Yeah, I had a lot of have a lot of domains. Right now, I'm looking at, at at just the ones I have on on one provider here. I have 29. Yes. Well, <laughs> on one. Have, That's just on one. That's not even on like uh, you know the ones like. Like uh, for a while, I was using GoDaddy. I hate to admit it, but I was using GoDaddy for a while, and I've pretty much moved all the domains that I care about off of there, with a few exceptions. Like there's a few that I registered for like three years that I'm just keeping there until, you know, until it's like close to expiring, and then then before it expires, I'll get it. I'll get it out of there. Well, at least you have a legitimate reason. You have business that uses domain names. I really have no Some legitimate reason. What do you I have? have Can we, tell me one of your worst ones that you're keeping for no reason. My username uh, that I had as an undergraduate, I have that.com. Do <laughs> you want to share what that no. is? No, I do not. You do not? Yes. See, I only have six over at GoDaddy. <laughs> only six. So I, how many did I say was in the other one? 20, 29. 29. So I've got 35. Dom- what am I doing with 35 domains? Don't Some know. of them make sense. HiveLogic.com. That one makes sense. You understand yep, why? Sure. Five by five dot TV. Yeah, those sure. are those are important. But I've got some funny ones. Let me let me. I'll tell you my most uh, the strangest one I have on there. I have uh, this is this was a great. I see. Whenever I have an idea for like a cool business name, I think you know I'll just I'll start up like a holdings company with the weird business name, and so I register the domain immediately. AutomaticPants.com. I've had for years. I've had that for over ten years through different registrars and like what, I is, would, what is that business it's nothing i never started it, I but know, i thought but like, wouldn't so that be a theory, fun like a holdings theory. company so like you'd automatically get pants i don't know i just really <laughs> liked it i had a i've registered mouth of brooklyn.com for marco mm-hmm. 
looking registered, for registered for him and you stole it from him is what you're well, I registered it on his behalf if oh, you would yeah, ever no, like it I will transfer it that's not how the legal system him. works <laughs> I'll transfer it over to him should he ever want it you stole it you're a squatter is what you are 29 domain names alright let's move on to something else alright uh, what do we got uh, auto termination so there was a story on tidbits by Matt Newberg did you read that I, I, I believe I did see that one yeah lion is a quitter right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, I did read that one. I don't know if the title really fits. Uh, but so to review for the people who don't recall or have blacked out since reading my Lion review and forgotten everything. Uh, in Lion, the relationship between running applications, processes, and the visual manifestations of those uh, has changed. So in the old world, it used to be that if an application was running, it had an associated Unix process behind the scenes. It appeared in the dock, and if you alt-tabbed, you would see its little icon somewhere in the alt, or I keep saying alt-tab, but command-tab. Uh, you would see its icon there. And then when You're you click the your, application... your Windows uh, history right there, missing alt-tab. Yeah, that's the, the origins of that keyboard shortcut is from the, the alt-tab world uh, from Windows. So in Lion, now, there are a couple things that can happen. The first is that if an application is written in a particular way, it can say that it supports auto-termination. And what that means is it's telling the operating system, if at any time you feel like you need me not to be running, feel free to terminate me and reclaim my resources. So it's not, so Lion doesn't do this to random applications. The application has to explicitly be written to tell Lion that this is okay. Uh, and Lion uses a heuristic to decide whether that's something it should do. Uh, and as I wrote in my review, it's pretty conservative heuristic where it says that there can't be any visible windows for this application. Uh, you can't currently be using it. Uh, and there are some of the criteria that I can't remember, but it's sort of, you know, it's not like you're going to be using an application or even looking at a window and suddenly it will disappear. It has to be completely invisible, uh, not on the screen and you're not currently using it. And then the, if you put the system under memory pressure, for example, uh, the operating system will say, okay, well I'm under memory pressure and here's this application that's not visible and not currently being used. I will quit that one. Uh, now, the other feature of Lion that applications that support auto-termination are also supposed to support, although I guess they, it's not mandatory, but uh, the idea is that they should support this, is the resume feature. So that if the user doesn't realize that the system quit that particular application and clicks on it again to go back to it, it should launch back to its previous state so you don't lose anything. So all your open documents are still there. You didn't have to worry about unsaved changes, blah, blah, blah. So it's very difficult to correctly support auto-termination without supporting resume as well. Uh, and there's a, another twist on this is that Lion doesn't necessarily kill the Unix process associated with that application. It may leave the process running, but remove the manifestations of that application in the UI. So it won't appear in alt-tab anymore. If you have the dots turned on, it won't have a dot under it in the dock but the process associated with the application is still running. So the next time you launch it, launch, quote-unquote, it will simply spring back to life instantly because it was never actually exited. So the, what I said in the review is that you can have applications without processes where you think you're running it, but really the process is gone, and processes without applications where you have a process, but there's no, there's no indication that the application is still running. It disappears from all of your different scenarios. Now, what they're trying to move towards is a situation like on iOS where on iOS 
you don't know or aren't supposed to know really whether applications are running or not. I mean, you do that double tap multitasking thing. All you see is a it's like least uh, most recently used ordered list of applications, and you tap on them and they and they either launch or resume, or you know just switch back to the application. You're not supposed to know whether or was it running before. Did it just launch? I mean, you can kind of tell based on how long it takes to come up whether it was running already or not, but it's not something the user is supposed to know ideally. Uh, but the thing about iOS is that it's completely consistent. When you double tap that thing, you see the list of all the applications that you've used in the order that you use them, regardless of which ones are running or not. But there are aspects of the Mac OS X UI, even in line, that don't behave that way. So, for example, the Alt-Tab switcher, when the process goes away, whether it was auto-terminated by, by you know, a line or whatever, it's not in the Alt-Tab switcher anymore. It still would be in the iOS right. switcher, but it's not in the Alt-Tab switcher. And the same thing with the dock. If you have an application that has a permanent home in the dock, yeah, it'll still be in the dock. But if you have an application that was just transiently in the dock and it got auto-terminated, it will be gone from the dock, and you can't even go back and click on it. So those two parts of the line UI don't work like the equivalent part in, in iOS, but the process model where the, the OS has the right to terminate a process that's, that's not being used does work that way. Uh, you're saying it's, this, a half, it's a half-baked implementation. Is what it's not half-baked. It would work except for, because, because the, like I said, the, the, the rulemaking is very conservative. Like, well, do you really care if Lion uh, kills a process that has no visible windows uh, you know, and that's not the frontmost application? Well, obviously you're not using it, so it shouldn't be a big deal. But what has come up uh, in the case of a couple of Apple's own applications is that apparently there's no time limit on that. So he was, uh, uh, Matt was describing a scenario where he would have no open windows in an application and do like Commando to open something and then say, oh, wait a second, I forgot about something. Hit escape, cancel that, go back to what you were doing. And so, okay, now I can go back to TextEdit and open it. But in the two seconds that, he's, that he switched away from TextEdit to do something else, during those two seconds, TextEdit wasn't the frontmost application, didn't have any visible windows, didn't have any windows at all. And Lion came along and reclaimed it. And so then TextEdit isn't running anymore. It's like, wait a second, TextEdit was running two seconds ago. Did it crash? Uh, I, th- my thing that I came away from this article from was that I, I didn't realize the system would do that. I thought there had to be some sort of timer, like, oh, and also you haven't used it in like a minute or 60 seconds or two minutes, like some sort of time lag so that it's not just like I, I stepped away for two seconds and when I came back, the application was gone, All right? That seems like, uh, I, I think they can... They can get away with this sort of half measure because I don't think, for example, that people would like the alt-tab switcher to behave like the iOS one where applications just simply don't go away from there. They just become unordered because that becomes too unwieldy, you know? In iOS, it works because you're kind of swiping through the stuff or whatever, but that alt-tab thing, you can't just have a continuous list of all the applications you've ever launched. ever launched, right. Resorted into, you know, the the order you're most recently used. Yeah, I've, I've asked I've asked a bunch of people, John, what what they actually use the process switcher in iOS four. Like, how many people? Like, are you using it to actually go back and find older apps that you launched? And time and time again, people answered the the same way that I use it, which is the same way that uh, that John Gruber told me he uses it. I think it's just the most common is is that you're going back to switch to the last app that you had. Maybe, maybe the one, the last two apps. Like, so let's just let's just make believe that you were going back and forth between mail, and you wanted to send somebody a clipping from an article. So you'd you'd launch you'd launch the mobile Safari, you'd find the article, and then you'd double click the home button and go back to mail, paste it in, and like it's, usually it's switching back and forth between 
the last mail, you know, the last app, usually mail, and whatever other app you're grabbing something from. And that's like that time and time again. That's what people said they were using. It's just almost like they're just you they're always going to that bottom left hand corner to grab the most recent app. That's it. That's all they're doing. They're not really going back through that. Whereas on a computer, uh, very frequently you'll switch between one, two, three, four apps all uh, all at the same time, especially if you're a developer. It's a different use case, right? On iPhones, you can't even see that many icons anyway. Yeah, you see what do you see, like four, four or five? Yeah. All right, so that's that's pretty much the limit of what you're going to use. Now, I didn't, since my iPod doesn't support multitasking because it's a second gen, the first time I really got to use multitasking in earnest was at WWDC when I had the iPad 2 there. And I found myself using most, maybe the four or five. I was bouncing around between a lot of applications. I was bouncing between Simple Note, Twitter, uh, my IM application, uh, email, Safari. So that's five right there just bouncing around them pretty much randomly. Uh, so I was using a good four or five of those icons. I never scrolled it, never went off to the next screen to find that because if it's off that if it's off that little list, I might as well just go back to the home screen where I know where stuff is. But I do find that that model does work for me in iOS where it's just especially the, the reordering by least recently used because if you if I do get into a sequence where I'm bouncing back and forth between, you know, simple note and Twitter I, w- I want it to reflect that. Simple Note and Twitter will quickly bubble up to the top of you know the left sa- side of the list, and I'll go back and forth between them. Uh, but if I'm bouncing around between three of them, they'll shuffle up to the front. You know, it, it's an adaptive ordering type of thing that works for me. But in Mac OS X, I think the most common command tab thing is to go back and forth between the two applications. So you go to one, then you command tab and find the other one, and then after that, it's just one command tab to bounce back and forth. Uh, I don't tend to use it to do anything more than quick switches back and forth. If I'm going to switch to an arbitrary application, I'll use the dock for that or drag thing, uh, depending on where my cursor is, because my drag thing, I have a, a process dock list, just the running applications, and they're in the upper right corner. The reason that's there, by the way, is, uh, is Apple's fault from the uh, Mac OS 8 days, 8.5. When when did the uh, the process dock thing come to yeah. classic Mac OS? Do you remember that? I think it was. I, I thought that it was some kind of extension or add-on that came as part of Microsoft Office. Oh no, no, it, it, it was part and of the. It was co-opted. System. It was co-opted in. Yeah, I think it was an Apple. Are you sure? Convention. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was an Apple you're, thing. You're like, like, I'm remembering this stuff, but I could have sworn that like it was part of Office. I mean, there's a I chat room. No, I mean I'm ready to be wrong on this one, but they're saying it was eight five. So. I, th- I could have sworn it can't. I re- because I remember, here's what I remember is I remember installing Office and you could tell which machines in, in my, you know, in our work group, in our work group of Macs, you knew immediately the people who had Office installed because this little, this little switcher would be up in the menu bar. It wasn't in the menu. It was a palette that you could make that would have little, I usually have mine configured to be 16 by 16 icons of all the running applications. I think oh, that thing. Now I know what you're talking right, about. So I had that going in, in the upper right corner oh, of my screen. you're right. You're right. Thing. I missed that thing. So I used drag thing. Drag as thing soon as that went away, that. Yeah. Uh, you can make drag thing do almost anything. And I made drag thing do I exactly did that too. That. Although now mine are 32 by 32 icons because of icon inflation. Uh, but if I could not have the dock, as I think I've said before, if I could not have the dock visible on the screen at all, I would do that. But you can't because... Doc is the only thing that can get notifications like badges uh, and, you know, bouncing and all the other business. And I, I need to, I want to see those badges and I want to see when they bounce. And because Apple has that API completely wrapped up and doesn't allow third parties to access it, I have to have both drag thing and the doc visible, which is extremely annoying. You're crazy. 
Uh, The thing is, if I don't run drag thing, my mouse goes to that upper right-hand corner and tries to switch to stuff. Like, I guess my mouse is always hovering around the upper right more than it is down at the bottom one. If I have to drag my mouse all the way down to the bottom to to arbitrarily switch between applications without all tabbing, like random access, I want to have, you know, my IM app come to the front. It's much faster for me to do it with drag thing. You know, and the drag thing just grows in one direction, doesn't move around based on minimized windows or anything else like that. So, yeah. How do we get on to that? Oh, auto termination. Yeah. So, the uh, I think this is a solvable problem. I don't think, as some people have said, see, the iOS model can't work on Mac OS X. I think this is solvable with just better rules because mm. it's it's fine if it doesn't do something unexpected. Like if I don't if I launched text edit to quickly edit, like I do my show notes in text edit. If I launched text edit, text edit to do my show notes, and then like two days later, uh, I hadn't used text edit, and text edit had since been quit by the system to, to reclaim resources, I wouldn't notice and I wouldn't care. And the next time I needed to launch text edit, I probably wouldn't even remember that I used to have it in the dock. You know what I mean? Uh, but it has to be, it has to be that the rules have to be better about when it thinks it's expected versus unexpected, especially for Apple. It would be best if it had an awareness of, is this application permanently in the dock? You know, like you can't tell by looking at it, but some of your applications, if you were to quit them, they'll stay in the dock because they're permanently placed there. Uh, that'll happen if you move one uh, manually. Once it's running, it will become permanently placed. Or if you say, you know, keep in the dock or whatever, or you drag it there without launching it, you know, many different ways it can stay in the dock, right? I think it's better to kill one of those off because at least then it's still in the dock. And when the person goes back to it, they may click on it and they might not even know that it was killed. That'll say, oh, it's taking a while to switch to that application and then it will launch, right? But I think there has to be a time limit. You know, even if it has no open windows completely in the background, you switch away for two seconds, the system should not kill that. And especially it should not kill it if your system is not under memory pressure, which I imagine Matt's system was not under memory pressure. Right? Why would it be from, you know, going away for two seconds and all of a sudden it thinks it needs RAM back? You know, I, nerds tend to have a lot of RAM in their systems anyway. I would say... Don't kill off the process unless you actually need the resources and unless all the current rules apply and it had, there's been no interaction with that application from the user for X amount of time, one minute, two minute, five minutes, something like that. Uh, it just it needs a better set of rules, I think. So I, I'm, I think this, and, and also the, the great thing about this is that it's opt-in and on a per-application basis. So if you're writing the type of application where you never want to be killed, like an IAM application, I don't think an IAM application should register, register itself for auto-termination because even if no one has touched that IAM application in 24 hours, people don't want their IAM application being terminated by the system because exactly. they're not available to give IAM. So it might be an urgent, not, or urgent message waiting to happen right there. Yeah, it's not like iOS or where email. it's an OS-wide policy where you have no choice. In iOS, you're going to get killed if, if the system needs memory. Tough luck. Uh, in Mac OS X, I think they have struck the right balance about this being opt-in, and their rule set is almost where it should be. I think they just need to tweak it. So I expect in a point release, they may uh, change this. And as I said in my review, one, one thing they may be going for here is the idea of, of Windows switchers who expect that when you close the last document, the application quits. That's kind of how TextEdit behaves now. Because if you close the last document, switch away from TextEdit, in a couple of seconds, TextEdit's going to quit. Right. People, Windows switchers may think that's correct behavior of Mac people are going to be pissed. And I think even Windows switchers will eventually realize that's kind of annoying because what if you just switched away for a second and then you come back and you want to come back to it and open something and the application is gone, especially if it doesn't have a permanent home in your dock, which I imagine text that it doesn't for most people. Uh, that's no, then not, you got to go find it. Yeah. You got to go wherever recent applications in the worst case. Command space T X return. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of people using like 
keyboard-based launch bars, uh, launch launchers after this, I think, which is a good thing. I don't know how, like, like whenever I sit down at a machine that doesn't have launch bar or Quicksilver or something running, that's like, that's like, you know, whenever I get a new machine, uh, a lot of people I've been reading about on, on the internet are saying, oh, I'm doing a, the first clean install I've done in decades. I think Marco was even blogging about this. Uh, Marco, host of uh, Build and Analyze on this network, uh, was saying, oh, I'm going to do a clean install. Like, I always do a clean install, like every single time. It's the, and we should talk about this on a, on a whole show a little bit more than we have in the past. But that is to say, Lion is the first operating system that I have not done a fully clean install with, and I've done that every single time. And that's only because I didn't go out and buy a, a DVD. I had to make one. So I've done a clean install on all the other machines that I've done, but every every time I do, I always do a clean install. Always do a clean install. You're crazy. I always do a clean. I don't want those garbage apps hanging yeah. around for decades and weird settings and plist files and cruft. And I, I'll I go in and do. I and I try and run, John. I try and run as much of a stock machine as I can. When I sit down on a machine, you would think that I just got this machine. I haven't even been using it. And I might have been using it for a year. I put the fewest apps on as I possibly can. I do. I work as long as I can without installing any apps or any customizations or doing anything. Like I'll change the desktop to the gray or to the blue, and that's that's like that's the only thing. I'll put the dock on the right hand side where it belongs, and then I'll install some kind of keyboard launcher, and then and that's it. I try to go with that, and obviously, you know, within a few hours, I have BB Edit on there. Uh, but I try to I try to just go as stock as possible, minimal as possible. Don't that's don't install. I don't even install an app till I really need it. Till I absolutely that's, can't do without it. How many apps you have on is different from whether you do a clean install or you do an OS upgrade. No, I don't want. Two, I don't two, want two any of that cruft. I don't want any old settings. I don't want any preferences. I want to see what what is it. What does Apple? What does Steve think I should? What what my experience should be like? Let's start with that. And anything that I don't like, of course, I have veto power. It's my machine. I'll override it and change it back. But. Who wants all those old settings hanging around, all that crap? What a de- decision I made for myself three years ago is still valid today? False. So, you know, I used to, back in the classic days, I would do, when there was an OS upgrade, I would try to do a sort of clean install. This may sound insane, but this is what I did back then. I would install the new operating system onto a new drive or partition. But I would still have my old setup there. And then I would manually merge the old setups and the new setups. Manually merge the system folders by dragging out the files that I knew needed to be in a certain location. So I right. manually merge all the inits, all the control panels, all the fonts that I wanted, all the enablers and drivers. Because <laughs> I mean, when I think about it now, it was insane that this, this even worked. But eventually you sort of learn the exact subset of things that you need to move. Is this part of the old operating system or was this a custom thing that I installed? And where does it go and will it work on the new system? I did that manual merge upgrade from 1984 until Mac OS X came out. Uh, and towards the end, when I was doing it on my blue and white G3, it was getting kind of tedious. But it worked well for me because I wouldn't bring along the preferences for the apps that I didn't use anymore. Like, oh, I'm not going to run that anymore. I don't need that preference, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, I would, and I would have a clean install, you know, and I could slowly build up to it to see if I broke something. Well, let me drag that back. But usually it was just a one-shot, one-day type of operation. I wouldn't do it now, though. But when Mac OS X came along... I started doing upgrade installs where when the new version came out, I installed it on top of the old version. And that is all I have ever done. And I have never had a problem doing Mac OS X upgrade install. I always just install you know right like, on top of my other disk. You know, it's like, John, we moved, you know, we moved from Florida to Texas, moved to Austin. And we tried to really weed out everything that we didn't absolutely need to take with us. 
And I must have done five carloads to the Goodwill of just donating stuff. And then when all our stuff got here, I, there was still, I was like, whoa, what is all this crap? What is this crap? I don't want this. We didn't donate this. We still have this. What is this here for? You know, just everything. Every time I go in a bar, I'm like, why did I bring these T-shirts? I don't ever want to see these again. Well, they're good T-shirts, right? But sure, I could have donated them to Goodwill. So now I'm donating more stuff to Goodwill that I paid to bring here. And that's how I feel with the, uh, you have this giant payload of stuff that you might not really need. So why bring it over? Well, here's why. Because the, the trade-off uh, in this situation is very different than the moving situation. The, the, the trade-off for me, I think, and I think even for you, if you think about it, between, especially for preferences and settings and stuff, between these microscopic, relatively speaking, P-list files, the, the burden that they have there, they're in a hidden folder now. You can't even see the library folder. They're buried in there. They're tiny files. They're not taking up your disk space. Yes, they're clutter. You know, if you know they're there, oh, there's a P list for an application I ran three years ago. Do I need that anymore? No. Right? So that's the, that's the negative, right? But on the positive side is if you happen to launch that application that you haven't launched in a while and all your old settings are there, to me, the value of not having to reset those preferences or not realizing that not, it's not set up the way I want it anymore is so tremendously outweighing the negative value of this 3K file on my two-terabyte hard drive. You know what I mean? It's not a size it, I, thing. <laughs> I want, well, size or number or, like, clutter. Like, I don't care. That's why I have a big hard drive. I want, if I could have, and I always said, like, I wouldn't have to bring over my settings in the classic macOS world if I didn't think I was going to use that application anymore. In practice, the only time I ever did that was, like, if I had a new version of Office, I wouldn't bring over the preferences for the old version, right? But I kept, the like, even up to maybe a year ago, I think I had preference files in my macOS 10 preference folder for classic macOS games like Solarian 2 or something, you know, that had just moved with me through the ages. Just in case I ever launched that thing again, or just in case I wanted their preferences, or wanted my high score file, or wanted my save file, like, the... The tremendous value of those little tiny, you know, uh, kilobyte files is so huge to me that, and, and the disk space cost and you know cl- clutter is so negligible. I say bring them all along. I because I do configure my system the way I want it, and I customize a lot. And I don't realize how much I customize until I go onto a bare bone system, and then I try to use it and, and realize, oh my god, I customize almost everything on this. I didn't even realize this was a default. How do people even use this? I mean, from stuff like the translucent menu bar, you know, when I when I you no, know that, that's, that is that's pretty like, bad. The, the the tip of the iceberg on, on the number of things that I don't even realize that I change. It, like the double arrows on, on both ends, which I have in Snow Leopard, I, I can't stand using a system without those. Of course, Lion eliminates that entirely by not having any arrows, but that's, I think we've already talked about it on, yeah. on a previous show. Uh, but no, I'd, I'd always do upgrade installs. I haven't had any problems with it ever. People who, who it's kind of like the permissions, you know, repair permissions voodoo, where they're like, oh, you have to do a clean install or it won't work. <laughs> It's it'll work fine. Uh, it will. Don't work worry fine. about don't worry about the preferences files cluttering stuff up. If you keep a clean system and you upgrade and install the clean system, it'll still be clean, right? Uh, you know, don't have twenty applications on there, then you won't have a lot of uh, preferences. And then when you do the upgrade install, it's not going to add new preferences. It's going to it's going to overwrite your old preferences for Energy Saver or whatever with the new versions, or it'll read your old preferences. It's like it's not it doesn't add up, right? So if you decide to use, which I think is a reasonable practice, especially for portables, I think it's good to do this. Your practice of don't put every application in the world on there. Just pull them on, you know, demand page your applications in. And when you need one, install it, but keep it to a minimal system. And don't 
tweak stuff. Tweak like the three things that annoy you most. Change the change the desktop background, change the, the menu bar, change the scrolling speed, the mouse tracking, and like three other things, and then you know you're all set. I would still say that it would annoy me if I had to set up a new machine and change all those settings. I'm like, what was my old mouse tracking? Was it this? So this actually feels a little bit faster. Maybe I had it wrong. You, I go See, crazy. I, I like that. I like the the reevaluation that that causes. I don't like, you know, I'm I'm fine with certain things being the way they are, but you know, maybe maybe there's something I was missing out like this like this window zooming that we've turned you're, off. You're I turned it, I, I turned it back on. You're out of control. I turned it back on. Why? Because I I felt like, you know, I didn't maybe I didn't give it enough chance. Like it was so <laughs> it, it was so it made me feel so sick to my stomach that I just instantaneously turned it off and I said, "You know what? Wait a minute. What am I so scared of?" Let me see what is exactly Steve wants me to try here. So I oh, turned it turned it back on, and and you know it's not so bad. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> I mean, I I didn't know how to turn it off for the months I was using the dev builds, and that was enough to sour me on it forever. Maybe it's because I was creating lots of new windows while testing. Maybe I don't know, but yeah, I'm gonna have it off, and I'm never gonna look back. Same thing with the translucent menu bar. I'm not going to revisit that. that you know what? No, I that, I'm with you there. <laughs> that's something that's just silly. It's, it's horrible. It's pretty silly. All right. Well, so, wait, wait a minute. Let's do a second sponsor. It's Campaign Monitor. Now, these guys have just released a, a this is their word, but I, I will second. It's not a word that's normally in my vocabulary. Gorgeous. So they send over they send over some you know points that they want me to use. But you know, maybe you could talk. But I'll you know what I'll use it. They have released a gorgeous update to their email editor. And it's true. And that lists, this lets you design even more flexible email templates. And to celebrate, they're giving away one hundred. Free templates. And that doesn't mean to 100 people. That means they have 100 templates that they're giving away to everybody. These are done by some of the best designers on the web. You can go to campaignmonitor.com slash templates, and you can see these things. When you go there, you can also catch a demo of their new editor, which is really, really, really cool. It's amazing. Uh, and this will be in action at the same address, so campaignmonitor.com slash templates. Uh, these guys are great. Longtime supporter, 5 by 5 Love these guys. Uh, they they have amazing amazing analytics when you send your your campaigns with them so please do go check them out campaignmonitor.com thanks very much uh, to them for making it possible i have a smorgasbord of uh other topics we can go to so many that we or didn't get to i'll, I'll rattle some off and you pick whichever one you think will fit in our scant remaining time sure um arc won't fit so forget about that people really want the arc I know. They I will, really I want the it. arc. They were very, oh. I just want to say for the record, a lot of people very upset with me that I discouraged you from talking about arc. So I'll put it Rightly that way. Rightly so. Well, why don't we just do a whole show just about arc? It won't be that long, but we'll get to it, but it's not enough time now. Uh, BB Edit versus TextMate, iCloud Web Apps, uh, <sighs> Patents, Markdown is too long. Yeah, so those are your choices. There's patents, a iCloud Web Apps, BB Edit versus TextMate. What can we do in 15, 10, 15 minutes? Uh, any of those I think I can do. Really? And you thought you could do the other thing in 30 seconds? Look at that. Yes, I'm notoriously bad at knowing how long it takes me. To Give me my choices again. I heard patents. I heard BB Edit versus TextMate. Those could you kind of jumped out at me. iCloud web apps. Mm, I know we could do that in 15 minutes, but I, I want to save that because I haven't really gotten to dive in with those yet. All right, so what do you want? Let's do the BB Edit TextMate, uh, TextMate discussion because I, after this, I don't want to ever talk about that again. Yeah, that's why I think it only takes 15 minutes because you did talk about it a lot. And that's why it's even on my list hearing everyone else talk okay, about it. Okay, let's get, let's, let's, uh, you know how, like, have you ever, you ever eaten something that didn't agree with you and you can, you can feel your stomach starting to get upset 
and you mm-hmm. know that un- for, until your body finally gets to the point where it's just going to barf out everything you just ate, that you're going to be really unpleasant. But after you barf, after the, t- the vomit is gone and you're done, that you're going to feel, you'll feel human again. You'll feel great again. This is how I feel about this discussion. Let's do it I thought and you, get it out of our I system. thought you were describing what it feels like to use VI. No, VI is <laughs> fine. That was actually apropos for Emacs. No, no. Right now. So you're a VI guy? Of course, because I'm I'm sane, rational, and intelligent. No, no, I can't believe you. Well, does that fit with Buddhism? I guess it kind of does. Anyway, I, I, I don't I don't want a text editor to control the lighting in my house, for example. So I have no use for Emacs. Says the guy who who was using Textimate for years because it duplicates your typing down columns when you can and you can make HTML just like your hero DHH. Yeah, you don't I want never use those lights, features of Textmate. The amount of the amount of memory and CPU <laughs> going into making Textmate work it makes Emacs look like I am a BB Edit user. I always have been. I also <laughs> I used Textmate with Rails because there was a, t- a period of very dark time period for BB Edit where you could not easily and and with the uh, you know two clicks open an entire folder. Now you can. And that is called the Dan Benjamin feature. Ask the BB Edit people if that is not called the Dan Benjamin feature. That is the Dan Benjamin feature. They built that just for me. And that allowed me to return to BB Edit for 100% of my text editing. All right. So here, right, go, go ahead. Let's talk about BB it. Edit let's and let's so get I, rid of I've, it. I've been using BB Edit since it had an awesome icon that wasn't twisted. Since I guess version two. <laughs> you don't, like the, you don't it, like the new icon. I don't like that it's twisted. I don't use that icon. I use a custom icon that's not twisted. It should be straight up and down. Uh, but yeah, BB Edit since I guess maybe version 2.5 ages and ages ago on classic Mac OS using BB Edit. I don't even know how I came to use it or where I heard of it. It's just sort of always been there as uh-huh. my text editor. It's the first text editor. I didn't, when I didn't know what a text editor was, BB Edit was the first one I ever used. And said, BB Edit, what is that? I guess you call that a text editor. Like I had no awareness of VI or Emacs. Right. I, was, I was, you know, a kid when this came out. Uh, and so that's what I use now. And and what distinguished it from teach text or simple text, teach text, Google that kids, uh, was that it was unstyled text. You were making plain text files. That was that's pure, what defines pure it. text. Yeah, a text editor from something that can do fonts or RTF or tables or you know anything like Microsoft Word, anything like that. Uh, now, oh, someone had a question in the chat room that I would. Uh, wanted to address here about changing the app icons. They wanted to ask if you could change the application icon without baking, breaking the code signature. Uh, like, so Mac OS 10 applications are signed now, uh, and it's supposed to be able to tell if something tampers with them. So if you launch it and the signature is invalid because someone tampered with the executable, like it got hacked by a virus or something, right. you, you would know about it. It would say the signature is bad. Uh, so when you sign an application, you can also put exclusions in there. You can say, well, you know, the executable is important, and this, this, and this file, and the nib file, and so on and so forth. But you can also say, but... If someone changes the icon, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change our application signature like that. There's no, there's no way you could hack me through this. You can exclude files from the signature. Now, I don't know if BB Edit does that. All I know is that I've been changing the icon to BB Edit ever since it twisted, and it has never complained to me. So I'm assuming the icon is excluded from the application signature. All right. Uh, so anyway, I was using BB Edit for years and years. Then I, I discovered the world of Unix, and then you discover the world of Unix. You quickly discover VI and Emacs. I quickly went in the Emacs direction for reasons that I don't want to get into now, because that's a whole other thing. Oh, yeah. Because uh, you but, like to control the lighting in your house. Yeah. No, so before uh, the Emacs thing, there was a co- at least one other text editor that appeared on the Mac that I tried alongside BB Edit. I believe it was called Alpha. Do you remember that? Hmm. 
No, I don't. So this this had uh, I forget what the icon was. Maybe it was like an ugly teal A or something like that. But the thing that distinguished it from BB Edit was similar type of thing, like a, a, a text editor, a programming type of thing. But the thing that distinguished it was that it was programmable with Tickle, I believe, uh, of all things, so that you could extend the text editor by writing little programs, uh, and you know, in in an Emacs fashion. Now, I'd never heard of Emacs before uh, up to that point, but you know, so Alpha was kind of not as stable as BB Edited, not as nice an interface, not as robust, uh, and the programming thing was a little bit too complicated for me, and BB Edit did most of the stuff I wanted off the bat anyway, so I didn't really deal with it. But when I discovered Emacs, Emacs and Alpha are both examples of what I like to call programmable text editors, that everybody calls programmable text editors, where Emacs, the, you know, people say it's, like, it's an operating system or it's big and bloated. This was back in the days when machines had four megabytes of RAM, mm. and Emacs was bloated in those days, but... Uh, Emacs didn't get any bigger, but machines got way bigger. So Emacs is not bloated anymore. But the thing about Emacs that makes people think it's like you were just saying, controlling lights in your house, is that it, it's a programmable text editor. People say it's an operating system, not a text editor. It is <laughs> that, literally an, envir- an environment in which you can write programs. Uh, so you can make Emacs do anything within the bounds of the user interface it provides for you. So if, if you want something to happen inside a window involving text, and you're willing to program it, you can make Emacs do it. It is extensible by the user, and there's no distinction really between the things that come with Emacs and the things that you program. So, for example, in Emacs, when you know you do uh, Control E to go to the end of line, you could write the go to end of line routine and bind it to Control E, and yours would have you know the, the built-in one is no more built-in than yours is. You know, uh, implementation-wise, there may be a difference, but it's completely level playing field in terms of how the text editor works and what it does. And, and this has allowed people to build essentially applications on top of Emacs, like Elm, not Elm, uh, Elm, uh, GNU's rather. Uh, am I saying that right? Someone's going to tell yeah, me it's I, news. I, that's how I say I say GNU. Anyway, yeah, so as, as a male, and I was saying Elm because it was a male thing, a male and newsreader inside Emacs, and there are shell things, and there are modes for, for doing HTML, and tons of programming modes where you hit the tab key and it magically re-indents all your code and syntax highlighting and, and all you know so anything you can it's it's turing complete like so if if you want something to happen when you hit a key you can program emacs to do that just now the vi is very different for other reasons in terms of the interface and the modes and all that stuff but vi is less of a programmable text editor it's more of a a text editor built for some particular philosophy with a set of features that you can extend you know by making your you know settings and preferences in a certain way but as far as i know it is not programmable in the same way as the as emacs is and i think this is the big distinction between things like bb edit textmate and i guess vi and things like emacs alpha and any other programmable text editors out there uh now i think this distinction is important because one of the knocks against bb edit uh is that um, it doesn't have a lot of the features that insert your favorite text editor here has. So if your favorite text editor is Emacs, then you can basically say every text editor existence doesn't have whatever feature you like. Because if anything <laughs> exists in text editing, you can do it in Emacs. Like, well, I really like it when I type this key for this to happen. And why is it happening that way? Well, because I have this .el file that I wrote or I car called it from somebody or I found somewhere on the net 10 years ago. And it does that. Can, can, does BB Edit do that? Well, BB Edit is not a programmable text editor. Even though it has an extension mechanism where you can write scripts and do stuff or whatever, it is not like literally programmable at the same level as Emacs. So if BB Edit doesn't do that thing that you want it to do, and none of the built-in features can be bound to that keystroke, or you can't bind a keystroke to a script that does the thing that you want to do, or it's unfeasible 
to have a script execute every time you hit that command? You know, you can say, well, well, no, it doesn't. Uh, and the odds are very high that if you're a heavy Emacs user and you've tailored your environment to your specific needs, you're going to have things that you really, really like to do that are not built into BBEdit. And millions of other Emacs users like you have their pet features that aren't going to be in BBEdit. Uh, now, TextMate did a whole bunch of stuff that also was in BBEdit. I just mentioned the, the stuff that you see on the, on the Rails demo of, of repeating the, uh, the text in multiple columns, so you, you know, saving you work or balancing HTML tags automatically or tabbing through the attributes of an HTML tag or all sorts of stuff that was built into TextMate. Uh, TextMate was also more programmable than BBEdit. Not as programmable as Emacs, but the, the mechanism through which you extend TextMate was more flexible than what BBEdit did. They had those bundles where you had, uh, you could have, arbit- not arbitrary code, but close to arbitrary things happening in response to keystrokes in particular contexts. Now, the, the business about what context are you in and what language I'm in in this particular place and what bundles are active for this language and stuff like that, that's built into TextMate. In the Emacs world, even that concept would be programmable. So TextMate is n- not as rigidly defined as BBEdit, you know, but it has a more extensible mechanism for changing the behavior. So that fostered this big community of, of TextMate bundles so that you know, the, the features that you're wowed by TextMate doing in the beginning, people made more of those things and they passed them around. So it was kind of like Emacs on training wheels where you didn't have to know Elisp and be a real programmer to do even relatively simple things you you could take someone else's bundle and modify it you could write your own simple bundle pretty easily you could look at someone else's bundle and figure out how to write one and and make one so that sort of gave textmate a a leg up and i think that is still the strength of textmate and emacs versus bbedit and that if there's a particular thing that you want to do in bbedit and it doesn't fit into bbs extension mechanisms uh you're kind of stuck. And that makes people say, well, I tried BBEdit, but it didn't have my pet feature and I couldn't figure out how to add it. And so I switched back. And I can sympathize with that because it's the same way with me with some of BBEdit's features where BBEdit has some built-in features that I use frequently. And I'll go to TextMate and say, oh, well, TextMate doesn't have that built-in feature. And they'll say, yeah, but you can get this bundle and combine it with that bundle and kind of approximate it. And it's like, but I don't know. I don't have that knowledge up front. I don't know what those bundles are, where they are. And I don't want to put in the work to do it. And BBEdit already does that out of the box and it's a built-in feature, you know? So, I think text editors tend to isolate us into little islands where we get stuff the way we want it. And as long as that island doesn't sink into the ocean, TextMate too, if we stay on our islands and do our thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, regardless of the things that keep us on our little islands, there, each text editor has individual strengths and weaknesses. For me, the biggest strengths of BBEdit, ignoring like the how it's actively developed and, you know, they fix bugs and so on and so forth like that. And also ignoring like the carbon versus cocoa 64 bit business. The big thing about BB edit that I've always loved is that it's been reliable and powerful. And what I mean by powerful is that I routinely open files with hundreds of thousands of lines of text in them, you know, megabyte files. I haven't think I've opened a gigabyte one yet, but if I did, I would just assume it would work in BB edit. I do that all the time. Log files, other things like copying and pasting. I have, I have a, the unlimited scrollback setting on my terminal windows. So I'll frequently be tailing a log that's getting a lot of activity. And I'll do select all copy and then alt tab over to BB edit and then command option shift N to make a new document with the contents of the clipboard. That's all, you know, reflexive. That's an example, for example, of a feature that I would want to have or create in any other text editor, the ability to quickly create a document with the contents of the clipboard and have it bound to that exact command. That's my muscle memory. But anyway, 
I do that, and sometimes I don't even think about what I'm doing. It just happens instantly. It's really fast, and then I'll be at the bottom of the document, and, and the line number counter will say 700,332, and I'll realize I just, I just copied and pasted 700,000 lines of text into a document, and then I'll just do process lines and like you know modify those lines with a regular expression. Uh, BB Edit supports Perl regular expressions, which, as you can imagine, I love because I, I know Perl, and I know their regular expressions. Uh, I have Perl script filters that I run on things like that. It's very high performance with very huge files. And that's one of the knocks against TextMate historically. It was TextMate 1 uh, in the early days especially, was that it was really bad performance with large files. And that's just a non-starter for me. That, that stops me from using the application because, you know, if it beach balls, like that, I've never seen text at a beach ball because I haven't used it extensively enough for, to, to see it do that. But I've heard people say, oh, I paste in a few thousand lines into beach balls. Forget it. I would, I would never launch that application again. It right. has to work. It has to be reliable. And it has to be high performance with really, really big files. Another thing is like the multi-file search in BBEdit. Other editors have multi-file search. BBEdit's multi-file search is fast. Fast shows me the results in a nice compact way. BBEdit's diff with the character level diffs. These are features I use every day. I diff huge documents. I want to see the character ranges. I want to be able to go down through with the, with the arrow keys and, and push changes back and forth, integrated into the application. A quick way to diff the frontmost two documents like... It's all part of my workflow, but the thing that keeps me going back to BBEdit is that it is, it's high performance. It's like, it's like a programmer's serious tool. And a lot of the things that are dings against BBEdit have to do with its nature as that type of high performance tool. So what I imagine TextMate's problem is when you paste in huge amounts of text, it may just be that they're using the standard text control, at least they were back in the early days. But TextMate has an awareness of Within a document, what, are the, what is the syntax in this range and you know, what bundles apply here and so on and so forth? And that requires some sort of dynamic processing of the content of the document. And maybe they're doing it in a naive way or whatever, but BBEdit, unconstrained by those things, BBEdit has a global switch for what language a document is in. It allows you to just splat a bunch of text there without having the editor say, oh, I got I to gotta parse all this text and try to highlight the keywords or figure out what fold I'm in or where the curly braces are or if this is balanced or not or so on and so forth. That There's a trade-off between figure out the syntax of the thing that's in this document and do smart things based on that and be really fast. And currently, BBEdit swings heavily onto the be really fast side. Now, I'm the first one to complain to bare bones and stuff that's, hey, I want this cool feature from TextMate or Emacs where it has an awareness of what language I'm in and it gives me completions based on that, and I can have a multi-language document, and language is not a global setting, right? I, I ask for those features because I'm just a complaining user, and I want everything, right? But the current situation, I, I believe that the lack of a lot of those features is one of the things that makes BBEdit so darn fast and reliable. Um, so I think there should be a balance struck somewhere in the middle, but TextMate is way over to the other side of this continuum, and right now, despite BBEdit's failings in these few areas, uh, it's the one that I continue to use. It's same thing with, with Emacs. Like Emacs, C Pearl mode in Emacs has better magical indenting and keywording and stuff like that. And I kind of miss that in BB Edit. But on the other hand, Emacs, even little dinky Emacs can feel slower when I'm doing that. And I really don't like it when I type a key in a text editor and a whole bunch of stuff appears. You know, like when you want it, it's cool and magical. When you're doing a demo, it looks awesome. But when you accidentally hit return and it double matches your curly braces and puts you inside the parens of a for loop and you just wanted to go to the next line, that pisses me off. And now I have to clean up the cruft that the text editor put for me. So there's a balance between that uh, that needs to be struck. But my taste leans more towards the BB edit way right now. 
so that's that's my personal BB Edit versus TextMate thing. As far as you and Merle and the other people who are switching from TextMate and stuff like that, I completely sympathize with the transition because you you build up a little kingdom for yourself in your text editor with your keyboard shortcuts, with your Unix filters, with your bundles, with whatever whatever feature that your text editor has that you use a lot of. Well, see, Merlin does a, Merlin does a heck of a lot more than that than I do. To be to be totally uh, fair about it, I. I've been using BB Edit since there was a BB Edit, and at least since I had a Mac that could run it, which is in the, I guess, probably late 80s, right? Didn't it come out in like 88? 91, 91, 92, I think was the first version. Okay. Well, I can't, yeah, everything from like the mid to late 80s to the early 90s is a blur of strange music and Nagel prints. <laughs> so whenever, okay. whenever there was a BB Edit, I was using it. And. You know, for me, that w- that was home. The nine point font, everything. And then, when I started doing Rails, all the cool kids used TextMate. I said, "Well, let me see what this is. You know, this is all about." And it had some neat features that were great for Rails development. And I, I told you what the the big killer feature was for me. So, you know, but I but I did go back to BB Edit. And when I say go back, I mean I never left it. I never stopped using BB Edit. Uh, I just didn't do Rails in BB Edit. I did everything else in BB Edit, just not Rails. And uh, they eventually went back for Rails when it had the couple killer features that I needed. Now Merlin is de- he's deeply entrenched in an almost a disturbing way in into TextMate. Uh, and uh, for him, I would think yeah, it would be real hard to switch away from it. But I, I for me, I didn't even take my preferences along with me. Start fresh. See, Merlin could get out. Like he's not in too deep. But Emacs users, Emacs, <laughs> no, Emacs they're lifers, in way too deep. You can't you can't get them out because they they have literally just built. <laughs> they have built a world for them. It's like Minecraft in there. Minecraft for text editing. They have built a world for themselves inside Emacs. And there's no way in hell any text editor that's not programmable would be able to do what they do with Emacs, uh, including VI and all those other ones. And even if they were programmable, that would mean that these people would have to essentially port <laughs> their environment with all their stuff that they'd, you know, they'd written or third-party stuff to this new environment. So they're never getting out. Just, uh, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Oh no, you never even, you never even think you're out of Emacs. You're, you're in it for life. That's true. Uh, but that's that's kind of like the the programmable aspect. I try to. I'm sure I'm using 0.001% of BBS features because it has so many features in there. Uh, it's the type of application where if you go and ask for a feature. At this point, like I'm paranoid about ever asking for feature from BB Edit because I always want to expect to get that reply back. I'm like, oh, that's already there. You just got to know where to find it. There's so many features; they can't all be visible in the UI, but they're they're in there somewhere. So I use a tiny portion of those, and the portion I use is important to me. But I still feel like I'm I'm portable. Like if someday BB Edit goes away or some new great text editor comes out that's better, I feel like I can make the transition because I haven't really like because bb edit is not arbitrarily programmable I, I haven't dug myself in too deep to ever be able to get out i could probably port my keystrokes and my few things that i do to another text editor that happened to have the same you know good diffing good multi-file search uh you know good the ui that i like uh, and speaking of the ui i don't use that folder sidebar project business i have single windows with single text documents in them and it's very important to me that bb edit has maintained the ability to work like that right despite adding that sidebar for people who like the text you know the text and for stuff like rails and stuff i can understand where you have like a formal directory structure that's always the same for every rails application and you get used to it even there i think maybe i wouldn't use that i would rather have like a finder window open and then bounce back and forth but you might be surprised but i I forgive you for using bb edit that way 
but you know, but it's it's a, but the point is, BB Edit is not religious in that regard. If you want to configure BB Edit to behave in that way, you can. And that's, by the way, another reason why I would would never leave behind my BB Edit preferences, which are extensive at this point, is that I use BB Edit very differently than the defaults. When I launch BB Edit in the default mode, I don't even recognize the application. Like on someone else's machine, I'm like, is this what BB Edit looks like these days? So let me let me ask crazy. you a question. Let me ask you a question. If if I want to use BB Edit, and I know we're over our time, <clears throat> our time here. But if I want to use BB Edit, when I open up, you know, I open up a uh, a folder. I want to have it show me all the contents. But if the rest of the time, I want the individual windows, is that something I can accomplish? I think that's possible. But the thing about recent versions of BB Edit is that it's like an application in transition in terms of the people who want to work use it with the sidebar and the folders have different needs than the people who don't, and they're constantly trying to balance. Like, well, what happens if you? double click this thing in the sidebar but you want it to open in a separate window but when you drag in the, uh, a document onto the application you want it to open in the current project window or in a separate they keep going back and forth on the decisions and honestly I don't even know what the current behavior is all I know is that my mode no sidebars ever minimal windows just containing text my mode continues to work in exactly the way you would expect it to work right. the old way and that's very simple it's it's really it's great that they continue to support that because it really is like you know no you have no question what's going to happen no matter how you open a document, the open dialog, dragging it onto the thing, anything, it's going to open in its own separate window. Mm. How aggregates open, what happens when you drag a folder? I never drag folders onto BBS, so I don't know what happens. But the old style way works and is consistent. The new style way, I believe, has been bouncing around. Like that sidebar used to actually be a drawer back in the day when drawers were around. Do you remember those, the bad old days? Oh, I don't want to talk about drawers. I even built an app with drawers in it, but I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, So, but now it's a sidebar and they've been changing how that behaves. Even for stuff like does the sidebar have keyboard focus? That's another great thing about BB Edit, by the way. So they make these decisions about policy of like what should happen when you do X and Y and Z. And almost all the time, they have a, a P-list preference for changing it back to the old way. And they document their P-list preferences in the extensive release notes. And they're even in the official documentation. Almost every feature, it's, it's hard to ever get pissed because they change the way something works. Because if you want it to work the old way, there's usually, you know... Something defaults right, blah, blah, blah. You can write on your terminal and make it work the way you didn't want. Even for insanely esoteric stuff, like minuscule details. I'm amazed at the stuff they have plist hacks for because I'll find some situation where like, you know, the new version of BB Editor wouldn't let me save a file that was currently executing as a Perl script if the volume is mounted through SSHFS. And they'll say, oh yeah, uh, just set this plist thing to uh, disable safe save heuristics whatever and it will change go back to the old way like i didn't ask them for that option i didn't even know it existed when i said hey uh I, something weird is happening they're like yeah we changed something but if you want to go back to the old way just do that uh, that type of uh, bare bones as a company is great with the creating bb edit updates constantly improving the application constantly taking into account user feedback and constantly moving forward while also providing to the best of their ability every little minuscule option you could ever imagine, even if they're not in the GUI. I don't really care if they're in the GUI. As long as I have some ways to set it the way I want it, I'm happy. Um, and they are, they're great about that. You know, the only text editor that's better in that regard is probably Emacs because they say, do whatever the hell you want. It's not up to us. Yes, we are over time, though. Well, I think we're all right. But anyway, we, we should wrap it up. We should, this is a good show. Good to be back, though. Good to have you back with us. Yes, two weeks without a show. That's why I got all the stuff stored up. Was it two whole weeks? I don't know. It, was a long, it seemed like a long just time. Just one week. We just missed one show. I guess so. 
The last one was episode number 28, Trust But Verify, on July 28th. It's the 10th. That would yeah. only be one show. Yeah. Because if you say two, and then people will think that we've been really slacking off. We haven't been. But that is it. That is it for this episode. Yeah. I will be on vacation again at the end of August, beginning of September, but we still have two more shows before then. That's true. That is true. Was it 28? Was that the last one? Yeah, it was. That was it. All right, Dan. Well, that's it for this show. You can go to 5x5.tv. You can see the... Here, you can't really see... I mean, you could see them, but you can't enjoy them unless you listen by going to 5x5.tv. Also, we have some updates. We are now listed in the iTunes uh, radio section of, of iTunes. So if you're lucky enough to have iTunes on your Windows PC or on your Mac, which you will have it on your Mac, you can go there. You can click radio and go to News Talk, and you'll see us listed in there. So that's a neat way to listen live. Uh, so that's, that's neat. That's big news for us. So go there and listen to that. You can follow John on Twitter at Syracusa. S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, no Z, in Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, we want to say thanks again to CampaignMonitor.com, EasyDNS.com for doing what they do, supporting the show. And, uh, and that's it. We will be back next week. Mm-hmm.